Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and mold them and shape them according to your purposes. And take our hearts and set them on fire for love of your Son, Jesus Christ, King of kings, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. What does the Feast of Christ the King mean, and why is it significant for us? I'm going right for the jugular. We're at the Feast of Christ the King. It's the end of the church year. This is the feast which gets its title from the most famous section of the most famous piece of music in the entire Western canon. I'm thinking of Handel's Messiah. You remember the most famous part, the Hallelujah Chorus. It's from Revelation. Oh, yes, you remember. That's the book in the back, which nobody reads. In Revelation 11, it says, and the kingdom of our Lord will be given to his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The Hallelujah Chorus is about the kingship of Christ throughout eternity. And this is the day when we celebrate the fact that he who comes again to judge the living and the dead is now reigning as king, but will ultimately reign over all things as king when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So the question this morning is, so what? Why do we celebrate this every single year? And what is its significance? You all with me so far? All right, I've got three questions for you. Are you a child of the king? Number one, are you ready for the return of the king? Number two, are you living now for the eternal concerns of the king? Number three, are you a child of the king? Are you ready for the return of the king? Are you living now for the eternal concerns of the king? First of all, are you a child of the king? of the king. No question is more important. And as we begin, we need to clear up a common confusion about the language of children of God that's used sometimes in our culture and even sometimes in our church. You'll hear the phrase used, oh yes, you know, we're all children of God, as if everybody who's born is a child of God. And I get the sentiment, but in the New Testament, that's not correct. And it's very important that we're precise this morning about what the New Testament teaches. The Bible teaches that all people are creatures of God, created in the image of God. But the status of being a child of God is a special status. To be a child of God means to be saved by the cross of Christ and adopted into God's family by his grace. So all are creatures of God, but only those who are adopted through the blood of Christ into the family of God by his grace are the children of God. You with me so far? Which means this. It means the question that you've got to ask on Christ the King Sunday are, is, are you a child of the King? Are you saved? That's the question. We go back to 1933. It's an interesting date because as Bonhoeffer is preaching this sermon, Hitler's shadow is rising just in the background at this point in German history. Later, just before the end of the Second World War, right before uh, we finally beat the Germans, uh, Bonhoeffer is actually killed in one of the concentration camps, uh, tragically. But this is before all that, but you can feel the tension and the darkness starting to rise. And Bonhoeffer's preaching in Advent on this theme of Christ the King. Here's somebody who knows what it's like to be in prison. Here's somebody who knows what it's like to have to wait 
and weigh everything in the light of what really matters for eternity because cultures can shift and history can change dramatically. Listen to what he preached in 1933. Fascinating stuff, this. You all know he starts about accidents in mines. In the last few weeks, we've read over and over in the papers about such accidents. The men who have to go down every day into mine shafts deep into the earth to do their work are constantly in danger that someday one of the tunnels will collapse or that they will be buried alive by an underground explosion. They are down there in the earth where it's dark as night, left all alone. Their fate has caught up with them. This is the moment that even the bravest miner has dreaded all his life. Shouting will do no good, no more than raving and running head on into the wall. Neither will it help to exhaust his strength in efforts to get out. But the more a human being realizes that he's totally helpless, the more he rages while all around him remains silent. He knows that up above, people have come running, Women are crying, children are crying, but the way is blocked. He cannot reach them. Nothing is left but his final moments. He knows that people are working feverishly up there. His mates are digging with dogged energy through the rock toward him who is trapped. Perhaps here and there somebody will be found rescued, but down here in the depths of the farthest shaft, there's no hope anymore. All that remains is torment and waiting for death. But then... Suppose he should suddenly hear a faint sound, as if of knocking, of hammering, of rocks breaking, and then of faraway voices calling, calling into the emptiness and the darkness. And this banging and digging gradually gets louder until suddenly, with a mighty blow, the hammering comes close by, echoing back, and at last he hears a friend's voice, one of his mates, who shouts his name. Where are you? Help is coming. Then all at once the despairing man leaps up, his heart almost bursting with excitement and waiting, and screams with all his might, I'm here, here, help me. I can't get through. I can't help, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I can hold on till you come. Just come soon. And he listens beside himself with concentration as each blow comes near. Each second seems like an hour. He can't see anything at all, but he can hear the voice of his helpers. Then at last, wild, desperate hammer blow rings and rescue is at hand. And only one more step, and then he's free. Bonhoeffer says this, You know, don't you, why I'm talking about this on the first Sunday of Advent? Because what I'm talking about here is Advent itself. This is the way that it is. God is coming to humankind, coming near, the coming of salvation, the arrival of Christ. Look up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You are a child of God if you are saved. I looked up the comfortable words that we read every week in the prayer book in the old version. Just to remind you, Cranmer zeroed in exactly on these things. This is the 1559 Book of Prayer. After we say our confession and the priest says the absolution, the priest says this, Come to me, all that travail and are heavy laden, and I shall refresh you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Hear also what St. Paul saith, listen, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Hear also what St. John saith, If any man sin, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I have a confession to make. I, uh, I've been getting a number of requests for Laura's ordination sermon, and I just found out, dadgummit, that the taping didn't work, so I can't give it to anybody. So I want to say again uh, this morning what I said then, which is for crying out loud, Christianity is not good advice, it's good news. It's a historical reality about God's work to save sinners. And the message of Christ the King is meant every year to remind us, left to ourselves, we're down in the pit of our own darkness, our own despair, our own rebellion, making our own little worlds and our own little prisons out of our own little egos. And if God didn't rescue us, we would be nothing. And our status as children of God is because of all he is and all he's done for us. This is the ministry of Christ. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, he takes people who think they're nobodies and turns them into somebodies by giving them his saving grace. Think of Zacchaeus. You remember him. He's horrible. He's probably an Episcopalian. <laughs> he's, a, he's a tax collector, right? And he, de he defrauds people. He's super wealthy. And everybody in the crowd is out there seeing Jesus, and Jesus goes past the crowd, which, by the way, is a terrible violation of every church growth principle imaginable to man. What in the world is Jesus doing? And he goes under the tree, and he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house for lunch this day, you remember? I mean, nobody would even talk to this guy. He was so hated throughout the whole community. He was a swindler and a nobody, crumb bun, uh, incredibly hard man that just delighted in, in taxing people to death and finding extra ways to tax them even more. And Jesus invites him over to his house. And he, he, Zacchaeus says at the end of this story, I'm giving it all back and, and more besides. And what does Jesus say? Salvation has come to this house today, right? That's his whole ministry taking people who are nobodies on the farthest outskirts of the community and giving them the salvation of God. Do you think that Zacchaeus' life was ever the same after that? Do you think that he went around and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just Zacchaeus, I don't matter. No, 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 he mattered so much that Jesus went past the whole crowd, disrupted his entire ministry, just to invite him over to lunch at his house. That's the message of the gospel. It's that we're so bad, God had to die for us, and God is so good, he wanted to die for us. We all together so far. So the first point of Christ the King is you got to know that you're a child of God. Every week you come up for communion and you don't bring anything. I tell you this all the time. You just bring empty hands. And you only come because of the clothing of Christ's righteousness that he gives to you as a gift. That's the message of communion every single week. Why do we need it every single week? Have you noticed? We forget. <laughs> Do this in remembrance of me. Why? So that we are reminded every single week that we are children of God by God's grace. We don't bring anything in our resume. We don't bring anything in our checkbook. We don't bring anything with our last name. We don't bring anything with our genetic code. We just bring nothing. And we offer ourselves and we trust in the righteousness of Christ. You all with me so far? First of all, are you a child of the king? It makes a difference. Second, are you ready for the return of the king? Part of the message of the gospel that's been lost so much, but we do say this every week, and I'm just going to remind you of it, so you have to complete it. Christ has died. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that last part. You know, we actually say that every week, and then pe I tell people Christ is coming again, they get mad. Right? We actually say it in the creed also every week, right? He is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And then I tell people that this is actually going to happen, and they get upset. I said, you, you said you believed it. Why are you getting mad at me? 
right? I mean, that's what it actually says in the creed, and we say it in the liturgy. Why do we say it so often? Because we forget. And this morning is here to remind us that Jesus is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And part of what it means to be a Christian is not simply to know that we're children of God, but to be prepared for the coming of God. Again and again in our Lord's ministry, he teaches, I'm coming, I'm coming. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be awake? Are you going to be prepared? That's the language of the gospel. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be prepared? Are you going to be awake? Why? Because we don't know when he's coming. One of my favorite stories about the second coming of Christ is from New England in the 18th century. The scientists and the historians still don't have a full explanation of what happened, but the facts are these. From noon until midnight, all through New England, so we're talking basically from the center part of New Jersey all the way up to the Canadian border, it went pitch dark from noon until midnight. You could not see your hand in front of your face. The only way to function was with candles. May 19, 1780, Abraham Davenport was an American politician, served in the Connecticut legislature, was a colonel in the Connecticut State Revolution. The uh, state House of Representatives, which was meeting next door to the state Senate, adjourned because they were terrified by the darkness. But the decision also had to be made by the state Senate. So everybody looked over at Davenport and said, what do you think we should do? They made a proposal to adjourn. They were considering it, and they looked at Davenport and said, what do you think we should do? Kind of an interesting image, right? It's pitch dark. You have no idea. And you know what I'm going to tell you. In that period of time in American history, when there was a lot more faith in this country, a lot of people thought that was it. That was the last day. Here's what Davenport said. I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause of adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I therefore wish that candles be brought. There's a guy who's prepared. Somebody who asked uh, John Wesley as a kind of a stump the stars question one day, what are you going to do tomorrow if Jesus comes back? And Wesley paused for a moment and said, I'm going to plant a tree. By which he meant, that's what I'm going to do anyway. Because I live every day in the light of that. That's exactly the same answer as Davenport. I always live in the light of the fact that this could be my last day and the history could end at any time. So the fact that I live that way means I've got to be prepared. For those of you who are American historians and you're, you're fond of engineers and inventors, I'm a big fan of the Wyatt family. You may know about them, Nat Wyatt, the engineer and inventor, and his brother, Andrew, who was a phenomenal artist. And I'm very fond of a, of, a, of a story when Andy drew a picture of Lafayette's quarters near Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. And Nat, Nat is going to visit his brother, and he goes to visit his brother in the studio. And he shows me this, this huge thing, he says, and his drawings of this house. And then there's this tree, this giant sycamore tree. And there's a trunk, and there's gnarled roots. And Nat is looking at his brother's picture, and he's looking at this drawing of the tree. And he says to Andrew Wyatt, hang on a second, where's the tree in the picture? And Andrew Wyatt says this, it's not in the picture, Nat. For me to get what I want in the part of the tree that's showing, I've got to know thoroughly how it's anchored in the back of the house. Wyatt writes this, I find that remarkable. He could only draw the tree above the house with such authenticity because he knew exactly how it was in the ground. In other words, he was thoroughly prepared. He had to draw an entire elaborate tree trunk and root system, which wasn't even in the picture, to make sure to be prepared to do the right picture. That's an artist getting prepared to do art right. And the question for us is, are we going to be prepared 
to meet the Lord. When the Son of Man returns, Luke 18, will he find faith on the earth? That's the second question. First, are you a child of God? Second, are you ready for his coming? Third, are you living now for the king's eternal kingdom? I've quoted to you before Harry Blamer's wonderful little book, The Christian Mind. He's got six features of what it means to be a Christian in terms of the way that we think. Number one, I shall remind you this morning, is this. The Christian mind is characterized chiefly by, and I quote, its supernatural orientation. A mind that cultivates the eternal perspective, that believes in the fact of heaven and the fact of hell, that understands that all of creation and all of history and all of humankind is under the sovereign control of the triune God. One of the places I'm often most aware of the supernatural orientation of the Christian mind is at funerals, he says. I see a strange collision of perspectives cutting right through the gathering of people between those who believe death ends all and those who believe in eternal life. And the question is, are you living for the king's kingdom? People are in hell now. Salvation begins now. Heaven begins now. Jesus is constantly doing this with the disciples again and again and again. They're thinking weekends are made for Michelob. You only go around once in life. Death is the end. Jesus doesn't function that way. You remember Luke 10 and the 70, sending out of the 70. You remember that story? They're all excited. First missionary journey. journey. It's like seminarians. You all do know this about seminarians, right? They're terrible in Bible study. They're the worst because they think they know what the text means without actually looking at the text, the most dangerous. Right, so this is the, these are seminarians being sent on a Bible study, only they're going in the mission field, and they come back, if you remember, and say, Lord, it was great, we did all these things. So it's about what they did in Jesus' name. They're so excited. And they say it was great, and Jesus looks and says, and I quote, this is Luke 10, I saw Satan falling like lightning. Right? See, he's not even living in the same world. They're looking at what they did and what happened in space and time history. He's looking at what God's doing in terms of his kingdom and what Satan's kingdom is being affected by and how much the kingdom of heaven is being formed as a colony in Satan's enemy territory. They're doing heaven and earth and weekends are made for Michelob. He's doing the eternal perspective. And this third point is about the eternal perspective. Richard Moo, who, who's now gone from this world to the next, who taught it, um, Fuller Seminary has a wonderful book on the Lordship of Christ, and he says this. Recently, someone asked me what Christian thinker had most influenced my thinking. I love that question, by the way. I do hope there's somebody outside of the Bible that, that is a major thinker for you, that, that it makes a difference in your life as a Christian. I did not hesitate for a moment in coming up with the answer. Abraham Kuyper, he said. He lived from 1837 to 1920, founded a Christian political party, even served as prime minister of the Netherlands during the early years of the 20th century. He insisted that God wants Christians to be active in showing forth a divine rule. Jesus is king, and we are his subjects. This means that we must try to be obedient to the reign of Jesus in all areas of our lives. Listen. Family relationships, friendships, business, politics, leisure time, art, science, farming. In whatever we do, we must seek to glorify God. That's pretty comprehensive, last time I checked. 
My favorite Abraham Kuyper quotation comes from a speech. I've quoted this to you once before, one of my all-time favorite quotes, that he once gave before a university, university audience in Amsterdam. He's arguing about Christian discipleship and scholarship, and he says, scholarship deals with God's world, therefore it has to be done in such a way that honors Christ. And before this entirely secular audience at the University of Amsterdam, he concludes his lecture this way, with this ringing proclamation. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Boom. This strong sense, says Mu, of Christ's cosmic lordship is thoroughly biblical. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. To emphasize Jesus' lordship in this way is very important for a healthier understanding for what we need to come to think of as the ministry of the laity, the home, the brokerage firm, the auto dealership, the gym, the concert hall, all these belong to Christ. Our work in these settings is as much Christian ministry as anything that goes on in a church building. When Kuyper pictured Jesus as crying out that everything belongs to him, he was not suggesting that Jesus is some kind of self-centered property owner. Jesus isn't like a toddler who screeches mine as he yanks toys away from playmates. Kuyper knew that for Jesus, this is mine, expresses a love so deep that he was willing to suffer and die to rescue all of his creation from sin. Years gone by and years have passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last, as one saying has it. That's the third question. So are you a child of the king? Are you ready for the return of the king? Are you living now for the eternal concerns of the king? You hold me so far? All right, now I go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. So a word about being a child of the king. This is a call for Christian confidence. When I was a student in 1986, the queen, this is Queen Elizabeth II, now gone from this world to the next, she came to Vancouver, where I was a student. Her flotilla of 15 yachts, count of 15 in the harbor, seven out this way and seven out this way with a royal yacht in the middle. I still remember the front page of Vancouver Sun. Can you imagine? 15 yachts coming into Vancouver Harbor with a royal yacht. You think anybody forgot that? Now, in case you forgot, Vancouver's in Canada. You know Canada. It's that little country up there just, just to the north of us. You may not know this about Canadians. Canadians are very reticent, and they're very polite. Do you know this about Canadians? They're very polite. If you get to a four-way stop in New York City, and nobody knows what to do, all you hear is horns, and, and all you get is anger. Do you know what you get in Canada? No one moves. They all wait for somebody else to go first. I'm serious. They're so quiet, they're so polite, they're so reticent, they're so respectful. And the queen came to Vancouver, and all these Canadians, I thought were normal Canadians, lost their minds. In front of my graduate school, they were six and seven feet deep when her car came by waving like maniacs. I'm like, what happened? It's like, the, it's the queen. And, and she stopped at the University of British Columbia Hospital across the street from the graduate school in theology that I attended. And all these Canadians went bonkers. 
completely bonkers. And it's like, what happened? It's the queen. Now, can you imagine a scene like that? You know, all the cameras and all the people at UBC Hospital, and somebody walks out of the crowd just spontaneously and, and stops everybody and looks and says, that's my mother. Can you imagine the privilege and the power of doing something like that? I mean, to have someone that significant as your mom, holy cow. Well, guess what? You are a child of the king, even more significant than her. Way more significant than her. Which means what? It means you need to walk with your shoulders up and your head held high. First John puts it this way. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And then it says, listen, and so we are. Why does it say that? Because we need to be reminded. Because we forget how valuable we are to God. You matter hugely to God. You are his child. You need to know that and you need to live that in your prayer life, in your professional life, in your marital life. Do you? That's the first question. Hold with me so far. All right, now that little second question, are you ready for the return of the king? That's a kind of an interesting one in terms of the fact that history could end. And um, we're in a period of time where science allows us to know everything, technology allows us to do everything, and the internet allows us to find everything. So we're basically in charge of the universe. We can do everything, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the way that it is. And we're Americans, right? So everything centers around us anyway. This is an entirely different way of operating in the world. It means that you didn't make yourself, you didn't make this day, you didn't make this church. And so it means that he is the still point of the turning universe. And if every day could be the last day, it means that you need to think that way as a Christian all the time in the sense that John Wesley said, I'll plant a tree. So you got to start, you got to take that second point. You need to think about this way. Supposing Jesus came, I knew for sure he was coming next Wednesday. So here's my way of making it practical for you. I've, I've said this before in previous parishes and gotten in big trouble. I'll probably get in trouble again, but it's okay. But, I, but, but here's my way of pointing to, is there, is there anybody in your life that you're not reconciled to, that you need to write a letter to, that you really are thankful for about something they did, but you've never told them? Something, there are letters to be written, there are phone calls to be made, there are emails to be sent. And here's my question, brothers, is exactly when are you gonna do this? What are you waiting for? You actually don't know you're going to be here next Wednesday. None of us is getting out of here alive. You can quote me on that. <laughs> so ex 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 today is the first day of the rest of your life, right? So there's probably a family member or a friend or somebody that you've not talked to in a long time. I have no idea what it is, but I know that it is. One of the times when I asked this question, I had a woman who had an unreconciled member of her family for over 20 years. And when I said this, she went that week and was reconciled to that family member. It changed her life. Well, Jesus didn't come back. It changed her life. That's the way Christians are supposed to live. Whether he comes back or not, it's still a faithful witness, right? And you still did the right thing. That's what Christ is after. And this last point about living now for his eternal concerns, so many different ways I could talk about this. Let's talk for just a second about death, shall we? Since that's one of the ways that this applies. I'm very fond of funerals. I'm very fond of gravestones. I'm very fond of graveyards. By the way, I commend that to you as an exercise. You're in a great state. You do know this about South Carolina, to walk around graveyards. Do you know that? There's incredible graveyards in South Carolina. I love 
walking around them. My favorite gravestone in the state of South Carolina is at St. Philip's Churchyard. If you ever get a chance to go down there, I commend it to you. It's so old that the writing is pretty obscure, so they very helpfully printed a sign next to it that actually reprints what's on the gravestone. I won't take you through the whole thing. Here lies the body of Colonel William Rett, late of this parish. He was born in London, 4 September 1666, settled in this country, 19th November 1694, and died suddenly but not unprepared. 12th January 1722. Really interesting phrasing, did you catch it? Yes, died suddenly, but not unprepared. See, it's too late to write the letter or to do the will or to do the inheritance or to do the gesture. It's too late. It, you don't know what's going to happen. And part of what death does and part of what thinking about eternal things does is it has a way of relativizing our perspective. Um, we have to be reminded that Christ is about the things that last. And the only two things that last are the truth of the gospel and the people in your life and the relationships that you have. People and gospel, those are the two things that last for eternity. And the question you've got to ask yourself in the light of this is, are you investing in those things? Or turning around and thinking of Colonel Wet, are you going to die prepared? Please, please, may you die prepared with a will and with funeral instructions and with your favorite hymns in the file so that Chris and I don't have to guess. So I offer you the Feast of Christ the King, brothers and sisters. It's here every single year for a reason, to remind us that history is not just about this world. It's about his story, and ultimately it's going somewhere definitive. It's going from God to God. It started with nothing, and it ends with the God who created all things out of nothing. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So are we children of the king? Are we ready for the return of the king? And are we living now for the eternal concerns of the king? As we are seated, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the liturgical calendar that reminds us of important things year after year. Thank you for Christ the King. Thank you for Handel's Messiah that reminds us that he shall reign forever and ever. I pray especially, Lord, about that first point this morning. I pray that you would enable us to be confident Christians, that we could know that we are saved, that you reached down into the pit when we were helpless and hopeless and saved us from darkness and death and despair and hell and judgment and rescued us and put us high upon the rock and that we are your children and we can walk with our head held high and our shoulders up because we belong to you and you were glad to die for us. So deep was your love for us. Grant us this week that we might live in that fullness of confidence and that we might be ready no matter when you come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.